Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from the Wesley Foundation, improving the lives of California's children and youth at risk. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected. On the web at theschmidt.org. On today's California Report magazine, we meet a Vietnam vet who lived in California most of his life, but now can't come home. How can they deport veterans? And I said, well, they do. To me, that's, that's messed up, you know, but that's the way it is right now. And we get to know the town in Siskiyou County called Forks of Salmon. You know, everybody out there has to generate their own electricity. The town population is maybe like 30 people. And the road also scares people away from going there. Plus, we meet a North Korean refugee who made it to Southern California after a harrowing journey and found something he didn't expect. We've got your weekly road trip for the ears to meet the people and visit the places that make the Golden State unique. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Sex Bomb. It was originally recorded in 1979 by the Oakland band Flipper, one of punk's most influential groups. Flipper inspired scores of musicians like Kurt Cobain and Moby. The rumble and feedback you're hearing? That's the artistry of guitarist Ted Falcone. And as KQED's Kevin Jones tells us, Falcone was a Vietnam vet who brought the noises of war home with him. I'm sitting in Ted Falcone's loft in West Oakland, and he's playing one of Flipper's better-known songs. What are, what are the chords you're doing for Ha Ha Ha? Instead of strumming the guitar, Falcone stabs upward at the strings, adding venom to each note. His rat's nest of salt and pepper dreads shake with each strum. He plays chords, but somehow he makes them sound like they're wriggling uncomfortably as they leave his fingers. This acoustic performance of Ha 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 lacks the volume and brutal distortion he's known for, 
but it's still pure Falcone, who developed his unique sound over 40 years of playing with Flipper. The band released eight albums, all of them drenched in Falcone's signature guitar sound. That sound is one of two things he's known for in the punk scene. The other is that he's a veteran of the Vietnam War. Falcone grew up in Pittsburgh. He says he enlisted in the Army when he was 17 to avoid the draft. If drafted, I would have been, you know, artillery or, you know, frontline troop. Um, what I enlisted into was a... Um, it was an extra year, but it was more of a death, you know, I was indoors. Falcone convinced his parents to let him go, and when he got to Vietnam in 67, he worked in a communications office. It was still a scary experience. <laughs> Falcone's memories of the Vietnam War are mostly sounds. From the noisy squeaks coming through the radio to the muffled booms of rockets the Viet Cong launched into a nearby airfield. We used to get rockets come in, they used to use our antenna fields, um, but they weren't really into hitting us because they needed our antenna fields to, set, to hit the heliport down the street. After completing his time in the Army, Falcone returned to the States, settling in San Francisco. It was 1970, and for the next decade, Falcone would dedicate his life to art, mostly sculpture. He earned an MFA from UC Berkeley and almost earned a second master's degree in music from Mills College, where he experimented with early synthesizers and other noise-making instruments. The first time Falcone played around with a guitar and amp setup, he was hooked. He couldn't believe the noises he could produce, especially with effects pedals. It was like I'd never had that much loudness. So, you know, a week later I had a guitar and an amplifier and I was starting a band. His band Flipper was an anomaly in the Bay Area punk scene. The band's sound rested on plotting grooves and harsh social commentary, and they had no problem with ruining an audience's night. But Flipper drummer Steve DePace says it was Ted Falcone's guitar piercing through the roar and feedback that made the band truly original. When we're mixing a record, you isolate each, each instrument to get all the tones right and all that. Well, whenever we isolate Ted, it's, it's literally brain damaging. It's just unreal. was an acquired taste, but what propelled the band forward was their do-it-yourself attitude. The band never waited for a label to give them a go-ahead to record or an agent to set up a tour. They just did it. Falcone says he adopted this mindset during his time in Vietnam. If you're in the military, they say, build a bridge across this river. In a week, you're moving trucks across it. Here, they build the bridge. Two years later, they're still building it. Those guitar work could be challenging for some. Many have revered Falcone's noisy expressions, especially in the pre-grunge Northwest. 
Mark Arm, best known for being the lead singer of grunge titans like Mudhoney and Green River, was inspired by Falcone and Flipper's music. I was in a band that we were just trying to figure out how to play, and it sort of like pointed a way forward for us. <laughs> you know, like, it, it was even more punk rock than so much punk rock. But Flipper's music still inspires fans today. The band's shows attract old punks and new punks. Kids who respect history and want to make some noise of their own. For the California Report, I'm Kevin Jones. That's the way of the world. There are kisses left undelivered at size and modes And now we're going to hear from another Vietnam vet. But this one no longer lives in California. I was in the Army, 82nd Airborne. Uh, I'm a deported veteran. Jose Cardenas was deported to Mexico. He came to San Diego when he was seven and lived in the United States for 60 years. He's one of tens of thousands of veterans who've served in the military but aren't U.S. citizens. KQED's Erica Aguilar met him in Tijuana, where hundreds of deported veterans now live. It's a good beach day at Friendship Park. People are playing in the waves that splash against the steel border fence stretching into the Pacific Ocean where Tijuana meets San Diego. Up on the grassy hill overlooking the water, bands are playing. A vendor is selling popsicles, paletas, at the border fence. Families squint through holes at the mesh grating to see the loved ones on the other side. I don't really come up here because it, it, it stresses me out because of all the things that are happening, you know. Jose Cardenas is part of a group of deported veterans trying to get back to the U.S. They painted a section of the border fence, red, white, and blue. This is uh, the names of all the veterans that are deported. We did something wrong out there. For Jose, his something wrong started when his oldest son was killed in a gang shooting in San Diego. I went into depression. I... I lost my job and everything, so I didn't, I didn't have nothing. Jose started using drugs, and in 1999, police caught him driving a meth dealer around. He was convicted of conspiracy, served 10 years in federal prison. Then he was forced to go back to Mexico, a country he hardly remembered. When I got deported, I didn't even know where I was. Did you get deported here to Tijuana? No. I got deported out there uh, uh, by Texas. I was born down south. Tecoman, uh, Colima, but I don't even know my, because we came to United States when I was seven, so I never came back to Mexico. Jose always wanted to serve in the military, following the footsteps of his stepdad, an American citizen who sponsored him to become a permanent resident. Since I was in uh, high school, I was in the ROTC, you know, I, I, I was preparing myself because I knew I was going to get drafted. So when I got drafted, I, I went in from 1970 to 72. I didn't get the chance to go to war because uh, they never sent me. But after that, I went to uh, the reserves, Army Reserves, and then I went to the National Guard. I did my citizenship when I was in the military, but I never received it. Jose says his citizenship application was never processed, and his green card didn't protect him from deportation after serving prison time. So now Jose is living alone in Playa Tijuana, trying to fit in speaking a language he barely understands. They do kind of make fun of us because we don't speak the language, you know, they, they call us pochos. 
Well, now I, I kind of learning how to cope with this type of life. Jose points across the border fence to California. He's got great grandkids there he's never met. He's got two daughters and a son in San Diego. The son is a vet too. He he did 10 years in, in Kosovo and uh, Iraq. Sometimes he wakes up and uh, he goes crazy. You know, he just, you know, he thinks he's out there, you know, still. So somebody needs to be there to, to kind of calm him down and stuff. And, and that hurts me because I can't do that. I can't, you know, I'm here, he's out there. It's hard, you know, and now I got another, my, one of my grandsons, they just went to the military, he's, uh, you know, Jordan. Who knows what's going to happen to him, you know, and that's another thing that, uh, it worries me, you know, because you never know what's going to happen. Jose has rallied and marched, met with California politicians as part of a group of deported veterans lobbying the government to allow them to return to the U.S. based on their military service. For now, Jose Cardenas says there is one way he could eventually get back to California. Veterans who leave active military duty with an honorable discharge like him are eligible for a burial spot in a VA cemetery. For the California Report, I'm Erica Aguilar. Okay, so we just met a Vietnam vet who helped revolutionize the punk scene and another who's struggling to make a new life in a country he barely knows. In this next story, the California Report's April Demboski introduces us to a vet whose health is failing. The choices he's making at the end of his life are shaped by what he went through in Vietnam. A lot of Ron Fleming's fellow soldiers spent the last five decades trying to forget what they saw and did in Vietnam— now 74, Fleming has spent most of that time trying to hold on to it. He's never been as proud as he was when he was 21. I take issue with those who say we lost. We didn't lose that war. Everywhere I went, we literally kicked the crap out of them. Fleming was sent into battle day after day as part of a helicopter crew. He fought in the Tet Offensive, sometimes 40 hours straight. I was a door gunner. My job was to hang out the door in a strap with a, a, a machine gun in my hands. Fleming fired 6,000 rounds a minute, but he never gave much thought to catching one himself. I bet you see at 21, you're bulletproof. Dying wasn't on the agenda. But now it is. Fleming has congestive heart failure, arthritis, and breathing problems. Mr. Fleming. He often lands here, the VA hospital in San Francisco, with asthma attacks. He thinks about death now. I wish you'd get off its ass and come on me. I'm sick of this crap. You see, um, dying's the easy part. Living's was hard. Fleming has had trouble holding down a job since he got back from the war. He never married, never had kids. He lives alone in Oakland now. His heart rate ticks up as he talks about how he angers easily and is always hypervigilant. About 10 years ago, he was diagnosed with PTSD. Sometimes I think that now I'm being 
paid back for all the men I killed. Uh, and I killed a lot of them, more than I can count. Unlike Fleming, some Vietnam vets don't find out they have PTSD until they have just months or weeks left to live. Symptoms like pain or breathlessness can trigger it, making vets feel as threatened as they did on the battlefield. War memories start coming back. They start having nightmares. Palliative care physician Vijay Periacoil says the opioid medications that are often used for treating pain and breathlessness can make PTSD symptoms worse. The side effect of those medications, they make you fuzzy-headed. And they weaken coping strategies for warding off flashbacks. So I've had patients who've told me, I would much rather tolerate the severe physical pain, the cancer pain, than take opioids, and my defenses crumble, and they don't want that. Some vets see their pain or PTSD as retribution. Sometimes I've had patients who refuse medications that might ease their experiences because they feel that they deserve to suffer, and this is redemptive. Sometimes the best thing doctors can do in these situations is stand back. But hospice nurse Patrice Villars says doctors and nurses, just like soldiers, hate doing nothing. We um, talk about the moral distress that we have sometimes about really knowing that we're doing the right thing for this individual so that we can be present for their, for their suffering the way they need to do it. For Ron Fleming, doctors have been begging him gently to consider mental health counseling or antidepressants that he's refused. I don't want to take psychiatric drugs and such. Uh, the vets call them the happy pills. Don't want any of those because they change you. And I don't want to change you. Nothing wrong with me. Do you feel like you deserve to be happy? I don't know. That I don't know. The thing is, the pain is what connects Fleming to the past. He was awarded 18 air medals for acts of meritorious achievement and heroism. The loss and grief he experienced in Vietnam are woven into the same memories of victory and glory. He doesn't want treatment that might make that go away. For the California Report, I'm April Domboski. We've got another in our series about California towns with bizarre or surprising names. A place called... What? 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 Como? What? Getting directions to forks of salmon. Henrik Meng of San Francisco tweeted us saying he's always had a soft spot in his heart for the name Forks of Salmon. It's a very tiny town in Siskiyou County where two forks of the Salmon River meet. To find out more about the town, we called up professional kayaker and filmmaker Rush Sturgis, who was born and raised in the place he affectionately calls Forks. Forks of Salmon is far northern California. You know, we sometimes refer to it as the state of Jefferson area. Um, sort of nestled in between Arcata and Mount Shasta, kind of smack in the middle of nowhere there. You know, everybody out there has to generate their own electricity. The town population is 
probably not a whole lot more than uh, maybe like 30 people. And the road also scares people away from going there. It's this one lane, couple hundred foot drop off to your side and, and uh, you know, in the winter when it's icy and, and, and scary out there, it's, uh, it, it keeps, the, keeps the crowds away, I think. You know, when I graduated, there were 10 kids in the school, just two other girls in my grade. So uh, it's kind of interesting, you know, I think growing up in an environment where everybody's kind of uh, in one room together and, you know, you're sort of mixed with different age groups. And I think it was actually awesome. I feel like it, it made me able to kind of get along with people easier. And, and overall, just I just really loved it. You know, it takes, a, I think, a certain type of person to be able to, to live in that kind of environment in that sort of location but you know my parents actually just really love it I think for the most part I think they they far prefer it over the the hustle bustle of the of the city life you know my my dad was a sailor and uh, he ended up getting into whitewater kayaking back in the 70s and started a small school there uh, for teaching people kayaking and mountain biking and just sort of adventure-driven sports that just sort of inevitably ended up getting into the sport. And, you know, now I'm a professional kayaker and also a filmmaker, and I document my adventures around the world, and that's my job. It's fun. Yeah, no, I'm super lucky, and, and I don't think there's any way that I would have been able to sort of find this path had I not grown up in a in a place, you know, like Forks. Bianca Taylor produced that interview with Rush Sturgis, who was born and raised in Forks of Salmon. Head to CaliforniaReport.org to check out photos. And while you're there, send us a comment with your idea for another California place with an unusual name you'd like to hear about. Or send us an email CalReport at kqed.org. President Donald Trump's trip to Asia this week comes at a point of extreme tension between the U.S. and North Korea. One sticking point has to do with North Korean refugees and Trump's executive order barring them from entering the U.S. The ban worries North Korean refugees already here who've survived a harrowing journey and left friends and family behind. KCRW's Benjamin Gottlieb tells us the story of one man who escaped North Korea and made it to California. I'm in a ritzy part of Southern California. It's called Rancho Palos Verdes, and I'm meeting up with Chul Uvriu, or Charlie, as his friends know him. He's in his early 20s, has a grin that fills up his entire face, and is one of only a couple hundred North Korean refugees who are living legally in the U.S. When I was born, there was a um, famine in North Korea. So my father um, left us when I was five, and my mother passed away from starvation when I was 11 years old. It is hard to imagine his life getting any worse, but it did, even after Charlie's aunt took him in. It was really difficult because there was not enough food for for their family, so I, I get to kicked out every night. Um, and then I'd spend a night in a winter cold and outside, so I was always alone and being homeless. And that's when Charlie first started thinking about escaping. But that would not be easy. The journey out of North Korea to freedom is arduous. And for most, it begins along the North Korean border with China. Charlie's father, who left the family all those years ago, he lived on the other side. He's Chinese. 
and Charlie wanted to join him. His stepbrother helped smuggle him across the border, and he found his way to his father's house. But his newfound freedom wouldn't last. Locals tipped off the authorities about a defector living in their neighborhood. He got captured and sent to a North Korean labor camp. It is an experience that almost killed him. Charlie says the guards there worked him to the brink of death, and that hunger consumed him. So uh, there was one day I was, I was working on the side of the road, and then I saw one people vomit on the street. And then, you know, it was so hot, you know, so like the vomit just dried out. And there was like uh, pieces of like the rice. And I still remember picking that up and eat, eat the rices. And eating them. At one point, he was so weak that the guards just let him go. They let me out, like, okay, we cannot use you anymore, and you can't work anymore, so I don't, want to, I don't want you to be dead here, you know, just go somewhere else and die. But he remained determined. He recovered, and he decided he had to try and escape to China one more time. I just want to survive. He didn't have any money, so he snuck onto local trains, dodging authorities to get back to the border. Then he made his way to the Yalu River, which separates the two countries. One night, he mustered up the courage to cross. The current, he says, ripped him far downstream. And then he saw a light shining above his head. I heard screaming like, Hey, you, come back here. I'll shoot you. And I was terrified. And at the same time, I was really like, It doesn't matter. I'm going to keep going. If you shoot me, like, whatever. That guard patrolling the river for defectors, he never did fire his weapon. Charlie made it to China. So finally I collapsed in the middle of the road, and then I cried for hours until I became really dehydrated. Um, And then one Chinese man found me, and then he took me into his house, and he gave me food and water and clothing. He would spend several more months in China before being set up with a South Korean broker would help him along the harrowing several thousand mile long journey to Thailand. That is where many North Korean defectors have to go to apply for political refugee status. Most of them then head to South Korea. I couldn't express this feeling because I was so happy and like I couldn't even sleep. But the government in Seoul wouldn't take him. Charlie says that had a lot to do with his father's Chinese citizenship and past transgressions of family members that he never met. They said he'd have to go back to China. At this point, Charlie began to lose hope. Yeah, and I told them, you know, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Seriously, I'm going to really die. And they're like, sorry, dude, can't help you. But someone he met at the immigration detention center in Bangkok suggested there could be some other future for him in the United States. He reached out to U.S. officials in Bangkok who made arrangements for him to leave. Remember, until this January, the U.S. still accepted North Korean refugees. He came to California in 2012 when he was 17. His first real meal after landing in the Bay Area was at the Chinese fast food chain Panda Express. He couldn't believe the options and all the excess. It was so good. Yeah, first time. Like, stepping my, my food into the United States, and I went to Panda Express, and it was, like, amazing. Just, like, fried rice and, like, the Kung Pao chicken. Catholic Charities paired him with a foster family in Concord. He enrolled in a local high school. And you would think that would be the end of it all. He made it. But the trauma, especially at night, was always there. 
There was a time that you know I couldn't fall asleep, and there was a time that I just screaming and just just getting up bed all wet, you know, because um all those um the traumas. Things he says are better now. He moved to L.A. and is studying to become a software engineer. At his house in Rancho Palos Verdes, his roommates are watching Netflix on a laptop. They've just gone shopping, and there are vegetables, packaged goods, strewn all over the countertops in the kitchen. Charlie is working on his computer. Computer code fills his screen. And I've got to be honest, it's luxurious by many standards. But Charlie can't stop thinking about the people he left behind in North Korea and their prospects now for coming to the U.S. I want to see all those North Korean people, you know, the one my friends that in North Korea starving to death and beat to death and froze to death. All those friends that I had, I want them to be free. When I ask him how he makes sense of all of this, from famine and neglect to freedom and relative comfort, he says he only feels one emotion, appreciation. For the California Report, I'm Benjamin Gottlieb in Los Angeles. And that's the California Report magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director this week is Nina Thorson. Our technical producer is Seal Muller, with additional engineering from Katie McMurrin and Howard Gelman. Victoria Maulion is our senior editor. David Marks is our online producer. Our intern is Bianca Taylor. The California Report's editorial team includes Susie Racho, Ryan Levy, Carrie Feibel, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Barracuda Networks, cloud-ready firewalls engineered for today's next-generation business networks. Learn more at barracuda.com slash cloudready. The James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected. On the web at theschmidt.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.